Let's pray. Um, dear God in heaven, we pray that you would truly, from your word, um, display yourself to us and even begin to capture our hearts in a new and a fresh way through your word this evening. We pray that you would um, put your word inside of us and transform us through the impressive power that it brings. We pray all this in your, your son Jesus' name, through whom we, we ask all of these mighty things. pray this. Amen. Tonight we're going to begin a, a series, and it's actually a series in a, in a book in the Old Testament. And I uh, gave you a hint last week, and I said the, the book has to do with dirt and with, a, with swords. Anybody, anybody have an idea where we're going to be? Yes? Joshua. Yes, but you already knew that. Yeah, all right, anyway. Okay, you have a different answer? Yes, go for it, please, please. No, I was going to say Judges. You were going to say Judges? Very good, very good. Uh, Revelation, very good as well. Yes, Joshua. When I think of Joshua, I think of two things. Swords and dirt. And you will soon figure out why I think of those things. But we can't just walk right into this book um, without any kind of introduction or explanation as to where we are in the Bible. It's just like you would never simply go walking into the land of Mordor, of course. You couldn't do that, because everyone knows you should just fly in the eagles there. It's much easier, much easier. Also, you don't simply just hike to Bald Mountain with, <laughs> without a map or anything, or some sort of plan, or some sort of guide to lead you there. You all know that that's just obvious. It's also obvious that if you were to start the Star Wars saga, you'd start it in a certain way. It's obvious that you wouldn't start the Star Wars watching saga in episode one, that's stupid. You obviously start Star Wars episode four. That's the real way to start Star Wars. And also, it's, it's obvious as well that you, you wouldn't try to sneak into Anchored without telling us that it's your birthday. That's, that's obvious. That's, that's <laughs> suicidal almost. I mean, what are you trying to do? Get us to sing happy birthday to you for the rest of your life? So, so it, there's, there's certain things that are very obvious, and, and it's obvious that we shouldn't just walk into the book of Joshua and just expect us all to know exactly what's going on in this book and give us, and, and, and have no introduction. So that's what we want to do here tonight. We want to just ask and answer three introductory questions, and the questions are real simple. They're why, where, and what? But I'll give them to you again here in a second. Let's start off with our first introductory question. This kind of gets us into this series that we're going to be in all spring. First question I have to help us get into this book is, is why? Why do Joshua now? Some of you may be fairly familiar with the book of Joshua. Some of you may not be very familiar some of you who are familiar, maybe you get very excited about the idea of Joshua. Oh, great, battles, excitement, bloodshed, death. I'm very excited about those things. And some of you are like, uh, there's also another side of Joshua that involves a lot of dirt. I'm not so sure this is the best idea, Pastor David. Why are we doing Joshua on Thursday night? Well, I have two motivations that I thought of for why we're going to do this. So just like two answers to this why question, you could say. Um, number one, I think this book is easily misunderstood. And that's why I want to go through it. It's, it can be easily misunderstood. I've got a theory about the Bible. Any part of the Bible that you misunderstand is a part of the Bible that's probably very dull to you. But when you understand the Bible, it is packed full of meaning to you and to your life. 
And if there's, if there's ever a, a question in your mind like, oh, that's kind of a dull area of Scripture, I think you need to understand it better. So there's a danger that Joshua may be misunderstood. It's, for example, it's not just a bunch of fairy tales. There's some fantastic things that happen in the book of, of Joshua, of course. There's this stopping of the Jordan River in the rainy season. And, and we were there at Winter Retreat. We know what a river can do in rainy season. There is this, this scene where these walls fall down from no other force than the stomping of feet around them. There is this moment that really disturbs our modern mind, where the sun stands still and the day continues for a prolonged period of time. Some people would say, oh, these are just biblical fairy tales. They're just, they're just kind of history massaged uh, with these people that want to excite us about God. So they kind of make up a few things. Well, it's not just fairy tales. And on that same line, it's also more than just action and conquest. The book of Judges or Joshua is more than just conquest narrative. Matter of fact, I was hesitant to do Joshua because there's so little conquest in this conquest book. I've been studying Joshua since last June and summer and so on, and I've, I've been thinking about how to unpack Joshua because there's a lot of parts of Joshua that are not battle scenes, and we need to know what they mean, how to deal with them. Um, for example, um, I was just counting up Hebrew words, because that's what I do, apparently, in my spare time. No, there's a computer program that does it for me. And uh, so, the uh, book of Joshua, the first uh, six chapters or so, Joshua 5 through 12, that's, that's traditionally what people see as like the, the battle stories of Joshua. Um, there are approximately, exactly actually, uh, 2,947 Hebrew words. There are 327 Hebrew lines of scripture. So just like maybe if you have a single column Bible, the Hebrew Bible has lines and there are 327 lines. That's the battle narratives. Now, very boring. Why, did, why in the world am I telling you this? Well, just notice something in comparison. In the next few chapters, Joshua 13 through 21, which is traditionally known as the land allotment section of Joshua, there are 2,851 Hebrew words or 350 lines of Hebrew. That's almost exact parallel. There are almost just as many words describing the land allotment in Joshua as there are describing battles. So, God giving his people land is massively important. The, the conquest is only a piece of the story, a piece of the message that Joshua has for us. This is more than just action or, or conquest. But we could also say it like this. this uh, the book of Joshua is more than just dusty, dry, boring history. There's not a part of Joshua that I, that I think is unimportant or un, uh, unapplicable to you. There, there is a kind of a disservice that your Bible does, especially the English Bible. We like to categorize books of the Bible in sections, right? We've got our, we've got our prophecy section. We've got our New Testament epistles section. We've got the Gospels section. And in the Old Testament, we've got this section that we like to refer to as the history section. You know, 1 Kings, Samuel, uh, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. 
uh, we all we just lump all of these books into this section we call the history section. But really, I think we'd be better served to follow the Hebrew model of dividing scripture and see Joshua all the way through Second Kings as the former prophets leading you up to the latter prophets. So we've got the former prophets and the latter prophets. The latter prophets being Isaiah, you know, Ezekiel, all of these big prophet, prophetic books. But what does that tell you about this book? Why did the Hebrews see Joshua as a book of prophecy? Well, because they saw it as more than just history. It wasn't dry history to them. It was prophetic writing. It was a prophet communicating the history of God's people to also communicate a massively important theological message to their heart and to their life. You could say it like this. This is Old Testament history preaching. That's what Joshua is. It is a book being preached, a message being preached. It is history with a bite to it. It wants to get a hold of your life. And we could also say this about the book of Joshua. It's more than just a story, just a biography about Joshua or Israel or anything. The true subject of this story is God himself. He is the main character. And that is why it is so important to us. This is a sermon. This whole book is one big sermon with God as its subject. And that has a lot to do with you. Because when you learn about who God is, you also learn about who you are and what you should be doing with your life as well. So that's one reason why I want to do Joshua. I think it's easily misunderstood, but there's another motivation for doing the book of Joshua. This book, I believe, will be good for you. This book will be good for you. It will do something to you. It maybe will delight you in the person of your God. It may deal severely with you when you realize your sinfulness before God. It may overwhelm you when you see the faithfulness of your God. But this book will not leave you with nothing. It will seek to change you. Once again, this is a book that is trying to communicate a message to you that is intent on changing you completely. Matter of fact, 2 Timothy 3.16, we always refer to 2 Timothy 3.16 when we're trying to introduce a book that people don't want to read. Uh, so we always use this verse, and here we are again. All Scripture is God-breathed, it, right, it, it reads. God-breathed. That means... Uh, Right from God's mouth. That's what all scripture is. It has God's breath. It has God's intention to it. And therefore it is profitable. It has an advantage. It is useful to you. God has intended every word in the book of Joshua to be written. Because it's advantageous for his people. You could think about it this way. Every page. Every chapter. Every verse, every word even of the book of Joshua has a usefulness to you. It is good for you. You will be useful to others if the book of Joshua can get into you and change you. I make make a bold statement here, but I would say every inch of Joshua is necessary for you 
for your faith and for your growth in faithfulness. We want to be faithful people. We don't want to be faithless people, but faithful people. And that's what Joshua wants. Once again, we want the truth of our God to have a bite to it. We want to learn things about our God that is, that, is, that is focused on shaping and transforming us. And that's what Joshua wants to do. Joshua wants to communicate a message to you so that you can grow in faithfulness. What about another introductory question? That's why, Joshua. But secondly, a second introductory question is, where is Joshua? Some of you are still trying to figure out where Joshua is. Joshua is the, I believe... Uh, Sixth book in your Bible. Always bad to do math on top of your head in front of a bunch of people. It is the sixth book in your Bible, and that's significant. I'm not even joking there. It's very important that it's the sixth book of the Bible. The, the place that it's located in your Bible is massively significant. And that's because it has a certain place in the Bible's story. Where does Joshua fit in the Bible's story? You could read Joshua 1, verse 1, and you'd see there's something that happened before this. Somebody important just died. The people are about to enter the land. But where are we, where are we at here? I think it would be helpful to get us up to speed a little bit with the history that's leading up to Joshua 1, verse 1. And thankfully... Helpfully, Joshua itself kind of has a little bit of a historical preface for us. But it's interesting, and this is something that we'll answer later, it's at the very end. It gives you all of the history and the background for Joshua at the very end of the book. Kind of not helpful if you think about it. But there is a purpose to it. Turn to Joshua 24, and we're going to just kind of read read a little bit of a get-up-to-speed historical account on where Israel is at this point and why they're here and what they're doing here. And once again, maybe this is old news to you, but it's very helpful for you to understand regardless of how familiar you think. Maybe some of you aren't very familiar with the Bible, and this will be very helpful. It's very important that we know where Israel is when this book begins. So we're going to just kind of kind of see the story of Israel here in a few uh, quick little titles, a little quick little few acts, and I'll, I'll read it for you. You'll see here first, the story begins with a pagan man in a pagan land. And let me emphasize, it's one pagan man. The whole story of Israel as a nation that's now on the banks of the Jordan, ready to cross into the promised land, begins way back hundreds of years before, with a pagan man in a pagan land. Here we see Joshua is giving a message to the people of Israel, but notice halfway through verse 2, he begins to tell them a history of their nation. He says, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. And now, of course, you're like, oh, Abraham, I know this story. But have you ever noticed this part of the Abraham story? Did you ever notice that Abraham, before being called out of his land, was living in a pagan land? And not only that, he was a pagan man in a pagan land. He was serving other gods. It's very important for you to notice this at the very beginning of the story of Israel. Who was their father? God didn't call Abraham because his life was a shining example of righteousness. 
God didn't even call Abraham because he was a pretty good example of righteousness. God called Abraham in this pagan land, and and God chooses sinners because there is no one else to whom God can choose. Sinners are his only choice. And this is very important for Israel to see at the at the origin their origin story, right? Israel wasn't made a nation because of their own righteousness, their greatness, their splendor. They are objects of God's mercy and grace. And Israel's birth story is a complete account of God's grace. He didn't have to choose to call Abraham. Abraham was serving other gods, maybe even happily serving other gods, when God called him. And this is important, once again, for Israel to understand as they're about to go into the land, right? Because they need to understand that nothing good is given to any of God's people, especially Israel, because of their goodness, but because of God's grace. This is what Israel needs to remember in the land. This is given to me not because I deserved it, but because God is a gracious God. And isn't that always the way God is with his people? That's the way God is with you. God didn't choose to call you to give you the grace of hearing the gospel because of your innate righteousness. He called you because you're a sinner in need of salvation, in need of Jesus Christ. How do you become a Christian? Not by stacking up your good works and saying, well, Maybe God will be impressed with me if I do all of these things or know all of these facts. No, that is not how you become a Christian. You become a Christian when you simply acknowledge the fact that you are a sinner before a God who deserves to judge you. And you bring your sin to God, seeking his mercy and grace. Abraham was a pagan man in a pagan land. And the story continues, you'll see it in verse 3, with slow steps of faith. Joshua continues, Then I, speaking for Yahweh, took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. Abraham left his land and his gods with only one thing, the promise of God. And that promise is told to us in in Genesis 12, by the way. God promises Abraham to make him a great nation. But look at how slow the promises of God progress, right? Abraham has to live a whole life and wait a very long time in this life for only one son to be born to him, and that in his old age. God's promises are slow sometimes in how they progress. Isn't that, always, isn't that often how God's promises work in our life, too? They don't seem to come as quickly as the pressures around us seem to need them. We feel so weak sometimes. There's that verse in the Psalms, right? No good thing does he withhold to those whose walk is uprightly. It's a fun promise, but it doesn't always feel so good when you're single, going on 2, 10, 20 years. It's a a nice little promise, but it doesn't always feel so good when when you're being honest and and being rewarded for your honesty with not the greatest job in the world. Sometimes God's promises 
Sometimes living for God doesn't always, uh, doesn't always affect your life for good. Sometimes it, it makes your life more difficult. Sometimes you're walking for a very long time. And this is where our story actually continues again. But let me read verse 3. Uh, I already read verse 3. This is where our story continues again. We, we continue with a, a detour of pain. It wouldn't be until Abraham's grandson, that's Jacob, uh, when their family would finally start to look impressive. Only then would he have 12 sons. But here is where God sends them into trouble, into Egyptian bondage. Look at verse 4. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and Esau I gave Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Now, maybe this isn't apparent to you, but, but notice, right? Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau gets his inheritance right away. But what does Jacob get? Jacob gets to be sent down into Egypt and into bondage. There, there, the route of God's promises go through painful bondage. It's not pleasant. It's not fun. It's not easy. And, and have you ever noticed how... Life seems to be easier sometimes for unbelievers rather than believers. I love Psalm 73. Psalm 73 bemoans the fact that, you know, their cattle don't seem to die so quickly as my cattle. Their lives seem to be happier than mine. They don't seem to have pains like I have pains. Their lives seem to be easier than mine. The children of the promise often have painful detours in their life. The children of this world seem to have an easy life. Meanwhile, the children of the promise have Egyptian bondage. But the story finally takes a turn for the better with an inescapable display of power. And we see this in in chapter 24, verses 5 and following. Then Yahweh says, I sent Moses and Aaron, and I smote Egypt by what I did in its midst. And afterwards, I brought you out, and I brought your fathers out of Egypt. And you came to the sea, and Egypt pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. Then they cried out to Yahweh. He put dark between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea upon them and covered them. And your own eyes saw what I did in Egypt and you lived in the wilderness for many days. Then I brought you into the land of the Amorites who lived beyond the Jordan and they fought with you and I gave them into your hand and you took possession of their land and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel and he sent and summoned Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I was not willing to listen to Balaam, so he blessed you repeatedly and I delivered you from his hand." The story finally turns for the children of, of, of Israel in Egypt when God finally intervenes to fulfill his promise. But it's after a slow and arduous and long waiting period. But when he does intervene, did you notice the spectacular way in which he does? It is, as our scene is titled, an inescapable display of his power. And that brings us to where we are in Joshua 1 verse 1. The children of Israel are on on the banks of all of God's promises to them with what? With a consciousness, with a memory, with an inescapable awareness of the display of God's power. They have this, this 
this absolute dominating memory of all that God has done for them to bring them out of G- out of Egypt. They say to themselves, the only reason we are here is because of God, because of his grace and because of his power. That is the only thing they are thinking of. Because God has chosen to save them in such a way that they can find no pride in themselves, but all praise to their God. And isn't that the way God so often works in our lives too? He saves us in such a way, and he sanctifies us in such a way, that we cannot take credit for any of the good things in our life that come to us through him. Matter of fact, sometimes God will send challenges in your life so that you will be humbled. And you will say, only he alone has sovereignty. Only he alone has power. I, on my own, am lost. Hopelessly so. It is only God's grace that has brought us this far. And grace will lead us home. God works in our lives to continually corner us by his grace. That's where we are. That's where we are in the Bible story. Children of Israel on the banks of the Jordan saying, our God is the only explanation for us being here. And that brings us to our, our final question here. That's, we already covered the why and the where, but what about the what? What is the message? If Joshua is a preacher preaching, a prophet prophesying, declaring to you a message about God that you must receive and obey. What is that message that Joshua is painting? Well, I think it's helpful, uh, and it would be helpful to all of our study to just, just zoom out. Just zoom way out on the book of Joshua. We're not going to cover anything in the first chapter until next week. But I want to just give you a lay of the land. I want, I want you just to see a real brief, real helpful map of the book of Joshua. And when you look at a map, it's very helpful to note like the big major intersections. What, what are the big roads, right? If I was trying, well, this is a dated illustration, but bear with me. If I was, if I was explaining to someone who didn't live in Bakersfield where I live, in Bakersfield, and, and how to get to my house in Bakersfield, assuming we live in a world that, uh, you know, doesn't have technology. Okay, so, so let, me, let me recreate the story, right? If I was explaining to my Amish friend how to get <laughs> to my house in Bakersfield, how would I do it? Would I say, well, first, let me tell you about this street. It's called Zion Court. It's a great street. And it intersects with another street called Mount Rushmore. Or, sorry, that's another street. It intersects with another street called uh, Black Hills Way. These are beautiful streets. They connect so majestically because right there at the corner is my house. And if you can just find your way to Black Hills Way and, 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 and Zion Court, bam, just, just find those two streets. That wouldn't be very helpful, right? I mean, now in the day of technology, sure, I can find anywhere. But you notice, by the way, side, side point, in the day of technology, we actually have no idea where we are. We have no perception of spatial anything, right? Because we just type directions into our phone, right? But say I'm talking to my friend here who doesn't have a phone, who, who, who navigates the old-fashioned way. 
Well, what would he need to know? He would need to know stars, uh, constellations. <laughs> Not, a little bit too far back there, Jacob. Uh, he would need to know major intersections, right? If he's coming from L.A., I would say, okay, you're going to come up the five, and you're going to turn right at 99. It's very important that you turn right. You can go on the five, but that will just lead to a few extra minutes on your drive. But you go up, you go up the five, and then you turn right off of 99, and you stay on 99. You're going to enter Bakersfield, but do not be dismayed. Do not be distracted or discouraged. Do not get off on Panama. Do not. Do not get off on White Lane, unless you want to go to my church. Do not do that. Keep going until you feel like you've already past Bakersfield, and then you'll find this street, this beautiful street that many of you know and love. It's called Olive Drive. You get off on Olive Drive, and it'll take you right to my house. Give or take a few other turns. (laughs) But basically, you're at my house, right? You need to know, all to say, major junctions. And I think this book in the Bible actually has a very significant major junction that you need to know to understand exactly what the writer is trying to do. Let's talk about it really quick, really quick. The major junction is in chapter 21, chapter 21. It's so important to me, I've highlighted it. Uh, it's 21, 20, uh, 43 through 45. This is the major turn. In the book of Joshua, the major junction is this. You could think of this as 99, 58, the west side, all connecting together in beautiful glory in about three years from now. (laughs) So Yahweh gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And Yahweh gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And no one of all of their enemies stood before them. Yahweh gave all their enemies into their hand, not one. Verse 45. Not one promise of the good promises which Yahweh had promised to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. Something significant is being said here. Number one, you, you see something very important. You, you see it a little bit in the English, but in the Hebrew it's even more apparent. This little word, uh, kol, which means all, is, appears in these three verses six times. Six times the author says all, all, all. What does he say? All the land, all their enemies, all the promises, all came to pass. Six times the author makes this case. Basically what he's saying is, God has been 100% faithful. Yes, there remains land to take, but you have seen up to this point how God has done it all and been faithful to all of his word. And you can count on him to be faithful for the remaining task ahead. God's promises, this is the message, God's promises never fail. Because they come with his presence and they come with his power. This is what happens when you have God on your side. All comes to pass. Not one word fails. You can be fully assured God will do what he says. If God makes a promise to you, 
you can be sure that he'll do it. That's the major junction. What are the major, what are the major roads leading to this junction? Well, you see this. I already kind of talked about this. Joshua uh, 13 through 21, we have God giving all this land again and again and again, just detailed land allotments. And then Joshua 1 through 12, we have God giving them all of their enemies. All of their enemies are given into their hands. As a matter of fact, did you notice verse 43 is a summary of Joshua 13 through 21? And verse 44 is a summary of Joshua 1.12. It'll become much more apparent after we've gone through Joshua, I guarantee you. But here, this author is summarizing the whole book. He's giving a crisp summary. God has been faithful to all of his promises. And this is where the author takes a turn. And, and we move from just this, these two roads of history to this major junction in the book of Joshua to a massive conclusion, a massive demand of the people of Israel. Why does, why does Joshua, the book of Joshua, converge right here at this point? Well, if you were to read, again, chapters 22, 23, and 24, you'd see that three assemblies follow. One assembly for every chapter. Three very important assemblies where Joshua gathers the people together to speak to them about their God. He has been faithful. That is Joshua's driving interest. He has been a hundred percent faithful. Not one word has failed. Not one inch of his promise has failed. But Joshua is concerned. And we see this in the second half, or the the end of Joshua, 22 through 24. Joshua is concerned. Yes, God has been proven faithful, but he is concerned that God's people will be faithless with their God. And that is why he preaches. He preaches to demand of them, who this day will you serve? Here is the history of your God. Here is his proven faithfulness. What will you do about it? Chapter 24, Joshua goes into detail. Are you going to serve the gods of your fathers? Are you going to serve the the gods of the peoples around you? Here is your God. Choose this day who you will serve. Do you see? Do you see what the preacher's doing? He's painting you into a corner. Just the way God has always painted his people into a corner. He says, look at your God and his faithfulness to you. Look at how he has done again and again good things to you. Think about where you would be without him. Now, choose this day who you are going to serve. Does that not apply to your life? You, students, you have a choice. Am I going to serve the gods of this world around me, their lusts, their desires, or I'm going to look at God's word, believe him to be faithful, and trust his word? Choose this day whom you will serve. One one way to summarize Joshua would be this way. Joshua 1 through 21 could be summarized through the sweet lyrics of that song, Oh, the Wonderful Cross, you could say Joshua 1 through 21 are basically saying, love so amazing, 
love so divine. That's what Joshua 1 through 21 is all about. All of this history is just to paint a picture of the majestic and divine love of God. What other explanation can we have for such faithfulness? These people had nothing going for them. It's only because of the love of God that is so amazing and so divine that these people are here. But then the song continues, doesn't it? Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's what Joshua was trying to say. Look at the incredible love and faithfulness of our God and ask yourself, does this God have my soul? Does this God have my life? Does this God have my all? You know, that's kind of the way the Bible goes. The Bible preaches that way all the time, doesn't it? Joshua talks about faithfulness, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. But you could also make an argument that that's exactly how Romans kind of preaches to you too, right? God's righteousness, so amazing, so divine, demands my Life, my soul, my all. First Corinthians preaches that way too, right? God's wisdom, so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Second Corinthians, God's new covenant mercies are so amazing, so divine, they demand my life, my soul, my all. Galatians, God's justification is so amazing that he would declare me righteous and put all of my guilt on Christ Jesus is so amazing, so divine, it demands my life, my soul, my all. Ephesians, God's riches of grace are so amazing, so divine, they demand my life, my soul, my all. Philippians, God's humility, so amazing, so divine. Demands my life, my soul, my all. Philemon, God's forgiveness is so amazing, so divine. It demands my life, my soul, my all. First and second Thessalonians, God's return is so amazing, so divine. It demands my life, my soul, my own. First and second Timothy struggled a little bit, I'll admit. God's church authority is so amazing, so divine, it demands my life, my soul, my all. What about uh, James? God's heavenly wisdom is so amazing, so divine, it demands my life, my soul, my all. What about first Peter? God's future hope that it gives to me is so amazing, so divine, in Christ Jesus it demands my life, my soul, my all. Second Peter, God's knowledge, God's salvation that he gives to me is so amazing, so divine. It demands of me my life, my soul, my all. What about the letters of John? God's assurance in my life of salvation is so amazing, so divine. It demands of me my life, my soul, my all. Jude, God's salvation demands of me. Revelation, God's ending demands of me. Probably wondering why I skipped Colossians, Hebrews, and the Gospels. Maybe you were wondering. But what are those books about? Christ's glory. Christ's person. 
is so amazing, so divine. It, he demands your life, your soul, your all. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this book that preaches to us without shame of your excellence, your faithfulness, your love that is so amazing, so divine. May we feel the punch of its hits in us deeply. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.